0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with John Fried about his biography of the 12th century German emperor Frederick Barbarossa, one of the dominant figures of the Middle Ages, and who was until recently a controversial symbol of German nationalism. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for, uh, for having me. John, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'm a rather rare thing in
1: the United States. I'm supposedly an expert on medieval Germany. On a whole, uh, Americans haven't been all that interested in medieval Germany. Uh, But I took up an interest of that in the 1960s and have written several books about medieval Germany. And this book is, I think, about Frederick, is in many ways the culmination of that interest in, in Germany. What led you to write the book? Uh, Very honestly, uh, Yale University Press approached me. Uh, It has a series of biographies and they asked me uh, to write a biography about Frederick. I have no idea why because I've never done any work about Frederick and I was a bit hesitant about doing it because basically as somebody uh, trained in the 1960s, I was trained as a social historian and not as a political historian and in many ways the study of medieval imperial history is a separate kind of historical discipline in Germany. So I started the whole project of sort of with a blank slate with no preconceived conceptions about Frederick, which was probably in many ways an advantage.
0: And you were talking about how your background was in the social history of medieval Germany. I was wondering if before we talk a bit about Frederick himself, if you could begin by explaining what Germany was like back then.
1: Well, if you talk about Germany in the 12th century, you have to first of all remember you're talking about a much bigger entity uh, than present Federal Republic. Although nobody could have drawn its boundaries, it would have included all of the Netherlands, large parts of Belgium, uh, northeastern France, Alsace-Lorraine, uh, good pieces of Switzerland, say Zurich. It would have included all of Austria. It would have included Slovenia, and it would have. Included in some vague sort of way even Bohemia or the Czech Republic so it's a much bigger area forgetting about the fact that you have got sorry, what is now Eastern Germany Slavic speaking peoples etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, there's certainly no standard language. I doubt that anybody in the 12th century who lived in Northern Germany could have understood any anything that somebody in Southern Germany said. I'm not sure how well Frederick could have communicated with everybody else so it's a vast area it is in many ways, a underdeveloped area, even in comparison, forget about Italy, which is the most advanced area in Europe, but even compared to France, etc. It is still in large part heavily forested, etc., etc. It is, however, undergoing enormous changes. Uh, uh, This is a period of economic boom. Uh, You can see it from maybe there were less than two dozen mints, Uh, issuing coins in the middle of the 12th century, you probably have by uh, 1200, 200 mints, which is a sign obviously of the growth of trade and commerce. You have uh, urbanization beginning to take place on a large scale. For instance, a city like Munich is mentioned for the first time in 1158 when Frederick has to settle a dispute between his uncle and his cousin about who had the right to levy tolls and Etc., and issue coins in Munich in this new settlement. So it's, it's an area that is in many ways underdeveloped, but which is enor- undergoing enormous changes economically, socially, etc. Uh, obviously, there's no such thing as a unified government of any sort. What you have are so called princes uh, who are, in theory, uh, the tenants in chief of the crown who dominate their local areas uh again in these so-called principalities whatever you want to call it, brandenburg swabia austria whatever. but again nobody could have drawn the boundaries of these entities either uh and it was essentially a question of an assorted rights that this prince uh, exercised in which he was fighting with other powerful men so it was essentially it was a collection of warlords if you want to be blunt about it uh with this <laughs> nominal figurehead of a king
0: so The title of Holy Roman Emperor is a very grandiose title, but doesn't actually imply the sort of power that we might associate with the label of emperor from, say, Roman times or from more modern appellations.
1: Well, uh, certainly. And of course, the Holy Roman Empire uh, would have consisted also of Italy, at least uh, down as far as southern Italy, although the emperor would have thought his power extended throughout the whole peninsula, and all of what is basically now uh, southwestern, uh, southeastern France, the Rhone Valley, Marseille, Lyon, that was all part of the empire. Uh, That would have been an area in size somewhere between the whole thing, between Texas and Alaska. So you're talking a vast piece of real estate made up the, the empire, although I would stress that the term Holy Roman Empire is in fact an anachronism. Uh, That's not a title they use. That that title is used only once in Frederick's reign. It it was the Roman Empire. In 1157, they pick up the terminology, Sacrum Imperium, Holy Empire. But they only put them together as Holy Roman Empire in one of his extant documents. And it's not really until the 1250s, when the whole thing has collapsed, that it becomes the standard terminology for the... For this political entity, so we talk about it as the Holy Roman Empire, but that 's not how they talked about it, now, except for that one document where in eleven eighty four where the t- whole title pops up,
0: hmm how interesting, so you have this very large entity, and you have this figure of the Roman Emperor who ruled over this enormous amount of territory. Who were these emperors uh, at the start of the century, and, and who were these emperors during uh, Frederick's uh, childhood and developmental years?
1: Well, the, um, what had happened was you had dynasties. Uh, you had had what was called the Salian dynasty, uh, which ruled from 1024 to 1125. Uh, Frederick, we think, was born in December of 1122, so basically until he was three years old. And uh, the Salian dynasty died out in the male line, and then the question was: How did you select the new ruler? Uh, to what extent was it hereditary succession? To what extent was it an elective monarchy? Uh, there was an assumption that Frederick's father was the most likely heir to the throne in 1125 because his uh, his mother, Frederick's uh, uh, paternal grandmother. Agnes was the uh, the daughter of the Emperor Henry IV and the sister of the childless Emperor Henry V. He wasn't chosen as emperor. The elective principal ran, won, won out, so they had an em- uh, emperor called Lothar III. In 1137, he dies. He succeeded in 1138 by the Frederick's uncle, who is the younger brother of Frederick's father, Conrad III. So with that, you begin what is called the Stauffer dynasty. And then Frederick succeeds in turn in 1152. But the rules for how you became emperor uh, were up, a bit up in the air. It was a combination of elective monarchy, which was predominant, but also notions of hereditary succession. And we need to keep in mind that that was true in varying degrees, all over Europe. Uh, uh, By modern rules of succession, King John would not have succeeded Richard the Lionheart as king of England in uh, 1199. So these rules were only gradually formulated uh, as precedents were set. So the German situation was pretty vague.
0: And yet, in spite of this vagueness and the flexibility, one of the points you make uh, in the book is that Frederick was raised without any sort of apparent expectation that he was ever going to become the emperor.
1: Yes, I think that's I think true. I mean, his father had been the most likely candidate. That was 1125. And then the Stauffer family, uh, of which Frederick was supposedly a member, uh, selects uh, Conrad instead, the younger brother, as the sort of anti-king, and he eventually succeeds to the crown. Uh, I think the, the best evidence we have that Frederick was not intended to be the, the monarch is that he was illiterate, and we would assume simply, well, so what? But in fact, monarchs are normally literate. Boys who are expected to become kings uh, are taught how to read and speak Latin. Uh, in fact, it's a famous favorite aphorism of the 12th century a, a king who cannot read is a crowned ass and Frederick's contemporaries <laughs> Louis Seventh of France Henry II of England all of Frederick's sons are literate and the fact that he isn't literate that tells me I think that they really did not expect him to succeed to the crown uh, and I think that's perhaps the best proof and evidence for that Uh, It also, by the way, I think another implication to all of this is if a boy who is going to be king is literate, and that means obviously learning Latin in part by reading the Bible, the Psalms, things of that sort, uh, to what extent is a boy who is king different from even the greatest magnates in his kingdom who are illiterate? He's had an education which sets him apart, makes him more like a bishop than he does in that sense, like a great magnet. And I think Frederick didn't have that.
0: So since he's not being, in a sense, raised and trained to become a monarch, what is he doing during these years, the, the 1130s, 1140s, as he's growing up into manhood?
1: We don't really know. I mean, he we don't know when and where he was born. He pops up immediately after his uncle is elected as king when he shows up with his father as a witness. And that's in 1138, by which point he's 15, which would have been adulthood. So he shows up. But we know, on a whole, extraordinarily little about him before his accession when he's almost 30. Uh, His biographer, uh, for at least the early years of his reign, is his uncle, Bishop Otto of Freising, who certainly knew what Frederick was doing, and on a whole sort of de-emphasizes this it's clear that Frederick was simply probably a young man in his 20s who was often at odds with his royal uncle, Conrad III, probably not always pleasing his father as well, although he accompanies his father to meetings, but he clearly is engaged in feuds of all sorts which were not necessarily pleasing to his royal uncle, the king, Conrad III. But that was played down, uh, first of all, by the chroniclers, and certainly by his uncle, Bishop Otto of Freising, when he writes his biography of his nephew, plays all of that down, and certainly then by modern German historians who certainly didn't want to present an image that Frederick had somehow not been loyal to king and country. So he's, he's a bit of a troublesome young man, He then goes off on the Second Crusade. But again, we don't know very much of what he did on the Second Crusade
0: either. Was his departure on the Second Crusade a sign of his his desire to perhaps build up his uh, bona fides? Or was it the exact opposite? Was it a sign that he still wasn't seen as being in the running at that time to become emperor, that he had the luxury, if you will, to go off on the Crusades?
1: Well, I think he goes off on the crusade because uh, his uncle the king goes off on the crusade. In that sense, I I think it's simply, uh, he's simply, he's young, he's in his 20s. That's what men in their 20s do in this society. (laughs) Uh, I mean, mean, you know, of that rank, I think he is certainly attracted to the whole religious currents of his time and era, and that part of it is the defense of the Holy Land. I mean, I think that's simply uh, what, Is expected, and I don't think there's any. I don't think there was any political calculation whatsoever. I think this is it. I mean, and it's what's interesting is that when he goes off on the second crusade, we have a document that he witnesses along with several other men just before he leaves, and those men who witness that document are then major figures for the rest of his reign, or at least as long as they live. So it's clear that at, by this point, these young men who probably engaged in his adventures, including going on the Second Crusade, were then his, essentially his the inner core of companions, if you want to use that, the men who were there on his campaigns and fighting. So he builds up at that point a, a kind of coterie of, of individuals to whom he is then attached in some ways for the rest of his life.
0: So then how does he become the emperor?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, as I say, we see Frederick, the early years of his reign, basically the, 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 fir- the first four years, through the eyes of his uncle, Bishop Otto of Freising. Bishop Otto is one of the most learned men in 12th century Europe, and he's one of the great historians of all times. And he casts Frederick's election, selection as uh, essentially unanimous, the obvious choice, etc., etc., etc. And that has, until recently, been the dominant view. He is chosen because he unites, says Otto of uh, in his own person, the two great feuding families. Rostoffer, uh, although he calls them the Henrys of Weiblingen, the old uh, dynasty of the Salians, uh, who had been kings till 1125, but the family of his mother called the Welts. And he unites them, and the princes chose him, he says, for that reason, that Conrad III on his deathbed recommends that they select his nephew rather than his own son as king. And so he presents, the Otto presented all of this as a kind of unanimous choice of the princes. The modern German scholarship, and this has been the last maybe uh, 25 years, has come really to the conclusion that what we're really dealing with was a coup d'etat in which essentially Frederick and the people loyal to him, above all his mother's relatives the Welsh, uh, went ahead and arranged for his election. It was totally unprecedented to exclude the son of a king from the succession. Frederick had a younger cousin, first cousin, uh, the future Duke Frederick IV of Swabia, who is probably five or seven years old at this point, and he's excluded from the succession, and that's obscured. They, it's a coup d'etat, and they move with unprecedented haste in, the, in winter, in February and March, to elect him as king. I mean, they literally gallop across the countryside uh, to do this. And, and no king had been chosen that quickly as Frederick was chosen in in on 4th of March 1152 as king so it was a coup d'etat Wow
0: so could you paint for us a picture of Frederick in 1152 I mean what was he like physically what was his personal status was he married was he single
1: well he's probably just under 30 I mean uh, uh his marital status is a rather intriguing question uh He was probably married to a woman called Adela of Vaubourg in what seems to have been a marriage that was forced upon him by Conrad III, his uncle, as part of the peacekeeping measures uh, just before he went off on a crusade. It's a complicated story, but but somehow to arrange peace in the kingdom by marrying off his, I think, rather troublesome son to Adela of Vaubourg, to whom Frederick was rather closely related to more closely related than we realized until very recently which was complete violation of church law but probably the fact that they allowed this to happen is a sign that they uh, were very eager to pacify the kingdom by arranging this marriage it's hard to know exactly what happens uh because Otto Frising his biographer only mentions uh, Adela in passing in his phrase Frederick sent uh, envoys off to Constantinople to to try to obtain a Greek bride because he had recently been separated from his wife, no name given, on the grounds of consanguinity. No name given. The one charter that he issues in which which he appears after he becomes king only refers to his former wife, no name, and her brother is mentioned by name but without his title. Uh, He's just and her brother Berthold, in not given his title, Margrave of Wolberg. So, I mean, clearly they did their level best to cover up this marriage. If you look at it, they probably lived at most together as husband and wife for two years, and they procure instant- he procures instantaneously a divorce on the grounds of consanguinity. From the Pope, I mean, he gets elected as king on the 4th of March, in base of uh, 1152, and the uh, annulment of the marriage occurs roughly on the 4th of March, 1153. So uh, apparently, the first thing he must have done after he became uh, king was to get Rome to agree to the annulment of the marriage, and obviously Rome went along. So it's a, a very, very uh, strange story as to why he married her, uh, you know, why the haste to get the divorce, the divorce technically on the grounds. It was an annulment because it was done on consanguinity. Very, very strange story, and they cover that up,
0: and Bishop Otto covers it up. He knows the story, but he isn't telling us. Okay, so he gets married fairly soon after that, though.
1: He he gets married, uh, yeah, in June of 1156. So the divorce comes, quote, the annulment in March of 1153, and then the, the marriage occurs in June of 1156, uh, to Beatrice of Burgundy. Um, she's much younger than he is. I mean, uh, he's born in 1122. We don't know. She's probably no more than 12 when they get married. So uh, it's not a, it's not a marriage where she exercises that much influence on him because there's this enormous age differential between them. And, and it's worth noting that the first known child they have is until 1164. So there's a, a sort of an eight-year gap, right, between the marriage and the first child, and then that's followed. There altogether, I think, 11 kids, not all of whom live, but there is still, so there's a, when it's a marriage, but at first it doesn't it doesn't seem to have been much of a marriage uh, in that sense. It couldn't have been.
0: What was the advantage of marrying her in particular?
1: Well, she was an heiress to, to Burgundy, of course now in France, and uh, it was rather strategically located. It bordered on Frederick's chief territories in Germany, which was actually Alsace. Burgundy was in the sort of in the, bordered on Alsace, uh, the county of Burgundy. And so this provided a route to Italy uh, through her domains, uh, through the Rhone Valley and then across the Alps, that way into the valley of the Po River. So I think there was that reason. Um, to, to to make the marriage. That um, probably was a strategic reason uh, to do so.
0: You mentioned the strategic reason and Italy in particular. Italy really seems to loom large during much of his reign, especially the early decades. And he ends up going on uh, to Italy several times to try to pacify, suppress, control Italy. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon those Italian campaigns, what was he seeking to do and what were the challenges he was facing in achieving those goals?
1: First, he goes to Italy six times. I mean, there are six separate campaigns, although in the last one, it's not really a campaign because he doesn't bring any troops with him soldiers at all with him. First of all, I think in talking about this, you, again, you have to get out of 19th century categories. This is, you know, it's easy to see this in terms of, of Germans and Italians in terms of German national unity and the Italian risorgamento, right? So you can't see it in those terms. I mean, there aren't any Germans and there aren't any Italians. I mean, I think they speak 13 different dialects of Italian, right? So there's no there's no Germany and there's no Italy. Uh, and what's interesting
0: is, and you mentioned this near the end of the book, about how uh, in spite of this, it becomes complicated remembering Frederick in the 19th and 20th centuries for that very reason. I, I remember the passage we were talking about how the... Nazis, when they were doing the tapestries, pointedly left out anything involving Italy because, of course, Mussolini was their ally.
1: That's exactly it. It's it's, it's a complicated thing. And, of course, uh, Verdi writes an opera uh, about uh, Frederick's defeat by the Italians, a, a battle of Lignano, right? And, you know, the symbol of Italian nationalism. Well, it's nothing of the sort. Uh, Frederick was fighting with a large numbers of Italians against other bu- Italians. Most of his uh, soldiers were Italians. Uh, So so first of all, you can't see it in 19th century nationalistic terms. I think the thing you have to keep in mind, he goes to Italy because that's what emperors do. And it goes back, the precedent had been set by Charlemagne, and Charlemagne in 800 got the imperial crown in Rome. And that's what monarchs do. They go to Italy, they have to go to Italy because they don't become emperor officially until the Pope crowns them in St. Peter's. Okay, so that's, although that's in dispute too. But he goes to, he has to go. I mean, that's the whole business. So German kings, German king after his election as king in Germany, has to go to Italy to be crowned as emperor. So he's done this. What may, uh, in many ways, they hadn't done it. They didn't go very often to Italy. If you look in the the period from 1120, by 1024 to 1152 his accession and you add up the total number of years that they were there it's remarkably few years there, uh, there may be a one out of six years they're there they really go and his uncle Conrad III never got to Italy at all so there hadn't been a German king for a long time in Italy certainly in a meaningful way it's something that you do so in part, he, he goes because that's what you do. You go because you have to be crowned, and as far as he's concerned, he's just as much king of Italy as he's king of Germany. So that's number one kind of situation in, in why he is going. He, because he has this coup d'etat, uh, he had paid off the princes. In particular, he had surrendered his own duchy of Swabia to his cousin, who had been deprived of the crown. It was his young cousin who now became the Duke of Swabia, which left Frederick with very little territory of its own in Germany that was under his direct control. Um, basically, what he controlled was Alsace, and that's exaggerating. He had a territory in what is now northern Alsace. Okay, uh, He didn't control all of Alsace. So he has very little of a territorial base, so he goes to Italy, becomes crowned, And he gets, I think, caught up in the fights between the Italian communes because these Italian cities, places like Milan or Cremona, are the most economically advanced places in Europe. Uh, They had gradually deprived their bishops, who were the nominal rulers of these Italian cities, of their authority and were establishing what were basically kind of city republics, if you want to exaggerate. Uh, but who were in constant warfare with one another, and so he comes down, and he's essentially caught up in this conflict between these communes. And on his first campaign, in a sense, Milan offends him. His campaign, march through Milan, the Milanese territory, goes rather badly, and it's an affront to his honor. And, and defense of his honor is a kind of a central aspect of what makes Frederick tick. I mean, uh, he, in that sense, he's like a gang member uh, who uh, <laughs> uh, has to uh, revenge any slight to his honor and so forth. So he gets caught up in, in this. Uh, he, his first campaign the Imper- to get his crown, he has a totally inadequate force. He trumps down, apparently by his own words, with 1,800 knights. Now, 1800 knights is not a lot of men to you know to march down to Rome. He was even planning to attack the Norman kings of Sicily. I mean, it's totally inadequate force. He can't really deal with it, and so his honor has been slighted by Milan, and he then returns with a much larger army uh, in 1158 to take on Milan, and he gets caught up in doing it. It's partially, he's doing it to insult to his honor, but partially, I think he is out to bring Italy under his control, Lombardy, uh, the Po Valley, uh, under imperial control. So to bring it, in a sense, to create a territory all of his own, which he really didn't have in Germany, his own territorial base. And so that's what he does. Now, again, we see this in terms of Germans versus Italians. They didn't see this. He was an ally of one group of Italians with a against fighting another group of Italians, and most of his manpower was probably Italian and non German most of his fighting force in any case, so he tries to do this, uh, but it becomes of course very oppressive and leads obviously to resistance, et etc cetera, etc, cetera, which is then increasingly encouraged by the Pope, which is a separate subject why it 's encouraged by the pope but so he meets increasing resistance, it requires further campaigns his army is annihilated but are they not not by disease in 11 by by force of arms but by disease 1167 he gets crowned uh, in uh, St. Peter's again by his anti-pope and the next day the plague breaks out or so some disease probably dysentery in his army his army is wiped out this is seen as simply the act of God destroying him and then he comes back again Probably, it's hard to know what he thought he was accomplishing at that point, but probably again out of a sense of slighted honor, and of course, it, then he's defeated in the, at the Battle of Lignano by the Italians, the sort of one place when Italians actually succeed in defeating a German army, and he's forced ultimately to make peace and to accept basically that the communes govern themselves. Uh, in, in that term, so in that sense it's a it's a failed policy i mean he, he 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 goes on these campaigns, he spends a third of his reign altogether in Italy the most of it in the end accomplishing very, very little except a, a nominal recognition that he is the feudal overlord of these Italian communes
0: and such as the communes he's having these conflicts with if you as you are of your reference, he's having these conflicts with the popes as well.
1: Yes, he's having a conflict with the Pope as well. And in fact, the, the Pope encourages the Italian communes to resist him. The, the, again, why he's having the conflict, it goes on, on several different levels. One of the things that, that Frederick asserts is that essentially all authority comes from the king, the regalian rights, the royal rights. And that includes the right to hold a court, to levy tolls, uh, to mint coins, but also to hold to have a, a water uh, water mill on a stream, right? To have weights and measures, anything that we would regard as uh, you know governmental authority. And he claims that all of these regalian rights come from the crown. Now it's interesting; nobody would claim that in Germany. They claim it in Italy, and therefore they and uh, he essentially requires. Not only the Italian communes, but nobles and churches to show that they have a legal basis for asserting rights of government, including the right to mill grain. So you got all of this kind of stuff, and he includes the Pope within it, the papal, the territory of the, what comes eventually the papal states. What the implication is, if the Pope gets his right to exercise authority in the papal states, from the emperor, he is the subordinate of the emperor, which is obviously unacceptable to the papacy. So that's mm-hmm. there's, there's simply, a, a again, a power struggle involved, a kind of power complex involved simply on that level in this whole business. There are other issues. I said you become emperor from the point that you are crowned by the pope. On one level, that's true. But by the time you get to Frederick's reign, uh, the Germans aren't really thinking any longer along those lines. Already the reign of Conrad III, the notion is that essentially you get your power from the moment you're elected king in Germany. And essentially all you get is your title, but they're actually using the imperial title even before he's crowned by the pope. Now, the popes don't accept that. The, the papal view is that he, you're not emperor until you're crowned by the pope. The, the, uh, essentially, the Germans are arguing the pope is just carrying out a ceremony. In a way, if I can use an analogy, not a perfect analogy, it's the question, when do you get to be president of the United States? Is it the chief justice of the United States who administers the oath who makes you president or you're president because you were elected by the by the people in the College of Electors. I, mean, I think that's where you're getting at. And, and Frederick will essentially argue you're, you're emperor from the moment that you, you're exercising imperial authority from the moment that you're elected as the king in Germany. So there is that issue at stake. There are also all sorts of questions about the degree of royal control over the church, etc. But the more, in a sense, the fundamental issue is, of course, the relationship between the pope as the head of the church and the emperor as the most powerful, most prestigious ruler in Christendom. And here you get to the whole investiture conflict uh, between 1075 and 1122, in which you've had the assertion of papal control over the church And, uh, and the notion that the church should be free from lay control the Emperor Henry III had actually appointed four popes, his four German bishops as popes. So the papacy won't have any of that. And so there's the question of the pope versus the emperor, but to what extent is the emperor get his power directly from God, separately from the pope? And that's what, of course, is also at stake. So there's this whole pope-emperor business. And it, in a sense, both the threat of Frederick establishing his power in northern Italy and uh, certainly claiming power even in Rome, threat to the Pope's earthly power. There's also the theoretical issue, what is the relationship between the Pope and the Emperor? And it comes to a head on the 7th of September, 1159, in an extraordinarily obscure event in which you have a disputed election in St. Peter's of the Pope. And uh, the majority candidate, Cardinal Roland this becomes Pope Alexander III. The problem was that Cardinal Roland had publicly insulted Frederick, or Frederick insulted uh, Frederick saw it in those terms, at a place called Besançon uh, in October of uh, of 1157. So, so, so the, there, was, there was a personal animosity on Frederick, and so it was
0: the honor issue comes up again.
1: The honor issue. His his honor had been personally impugned by Roland and so therefore he, he could not accept him and so the result is an 18-year schism in which Fredericks uh, recognizes for anti-popes. Pretty much not the rest of Europe doesn't go along and even in Germany there's a great deal of reluctance to accept it and he's finally forced after he's defeated like no no he's finally forced by the German bishops who had enough uh, to make peace and to accept Alexander as Pope. And in what is probably in many ways the low point of his his reign, he makes peace in Venice in July of 1177 at what has been called the First International Peace Conference. Uh, There are literally thousands of people present. We actually can identify thousands of people who are present. And he literally in front of St. Mark's Cathedral uh, he prostates himself as a repentant sinner at the Pope's feet. And, I mean, talk about (laughs) humiliation. Mm -hmm. Uh, He does that and and is essentially forced to give up uh, his claim, which he had asserted that as emperor he had the right uh, to decide a disputed papal election because the Pope was, uh, Rome was a bishopric within his Empire, and he could decide disputed elections within his kingdom. And essentially, he was giving up the claim that he really had a power to select a pope, that he had a right to intervene. So, so it was an enormous defeat, personally humiliation, but also really a, a theoretical defeat as well.
0: So really, after this point, he focuses more of his attention on the northern portion of the empire, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about some of the issues that he deals with when he uh, moves back north and spends more time in, in what we would now regard as Germany itself.
1: Well, in a sense, that's sort of the irony of his position. As I said, when he in 1167 on his fourth campaign, he goes to Rome, he gets his anti-pope to crown him and his wife finally in St. Peter's. You know, so in a sense, acknowledging his anti-pope. Uh, as the true pope, right, only to have the dysentery, probably the dysentery, break out and simply literally annihilate the army. But it turned out in a way that was to his advantage because this killed off a great many people, and it gave, including his cousin who was the Duke of Swabia. So that gave him the chance now to have a territorial base in Germany itself. He got Swabia back, which he had been forced as a result of the coup in 1152 to surrender to his cousin. He got it back. He got back all sorts of other territory from people who had died out. So for the first time, really since his election, he had a territorial base. So the disaster in that sense was to his advantage, if that makes any sense. Right. So he,
0: The silver lining,
1: the silver lining in a very uh, real sense. And so when, once that happens, he can begin to build up a territory in Germany. And that's what he does. Uh, and in some ways, he can finally accept the loss in Italy because he now has a territorial base in Germany. Uh, he can recognize the Italian communes as independent. The German princes weren't ready to go on any more campaigns in Italy anyway. <laughs> he's increasingly fighting it with mercenaries. Uh, Uh, And it is Italian allies, and very few princes who actually go on uh, these campaigns any any longer. So he's got a territorial base in Germany, and uh, he can do this, and particularly, obviously, in Swabia, but it's a really uh, pretty much southern Germany, uh, exclude Bavaria, but but, uh, all the way up to what is now, well, well, the southern part of old East Germany. So it's a big swath of territory where he can set up, uh, acquire rights of various sorts. Again, none of this is compact, contiguous blocks of territory. It's an accumulation of all sorts of, of assorted rights. But he's doing this. But that's true on the one hand, but it, his relationship to the princes has changed. And in the first 15 years of his reign, now that is before, in a sense, this disaster of this a fourth Italian campaign in 1166-67. The princes came on a regular basis to court, uh, and he settles their disputes among them. Um, After this, by the time you get particularly to the 1180s, they don't show up anymore. They don't show up. In the early years of his reign, he he travels pretty extensively uh, throughout the kingdom. There's never a capital city. There's never a chief favored residence. Uh, He's basically in the saddle and he's basically traveling over large stretches of this kingdom. By the time you get to the 1180s, he's not traveling very frequently north of the Main River. I would say north of Frankfurt, which is on the Main River. So he's pretty much confined to the south. He's building up his own territory, but he has very little contact with the other princes of the realm. And he basically allows to do their own thing. So in a sense, he foreshadows what the development is of the later monarchy, say, symbolized by Rudolf of Habsburg, the founder of the Habsburg dynasty in 1273, who's primarily concerned for building up his own family dynastic base of power, where power is concentrated, and who's pretty much limited in his relationship with the other great men of his kingdom. Sort of, in a way, the, the trend towards German fragmentation, decentralization, is pretty apparent by the 1180s.
0: How does the trial of Henry the Lion fit within that evolution?
1: Yeah, uh, the the old sort of nationalistic paradigm saw the trial of Henry the Lion, and it's a complicated story. The trial and Henry's loss of his two duchies of Bavaria and Saxony as the high point of his reign. He he over Henry is his. Henry the Lion is his first cousin. He has defeated his most powerful prince. We no longer longer see that quite that way any longer. Uh, Frederick had had his issues. I don't want to suggest he didn't with his cousin Henry the Lion. They were by this point competing for the same pieces of territory, uh, most notably that of their childless common uncle, Ralph the Sixth. So there were personal issues at stake. But basically Henry the Lion was by far the most powerful of these German princes, and the other princes had enormously resented uh, his influence and his power. And essentially, Henry the Lion stayed in his position because Frederick backed him. After the the trial occurs, well, takes place in 1180-1181, that is, after Frederick himself has been personally humiliated in 1177 in Venice. Where he's lost a great deal of his prestige, and the princes who've forced Frederick to make peace with the papacy have already arranged, in part, the terms of the uh, the of the peace with the papacy uh, to be hostile uh, to the interests of Henry the Lion. So they've already set this up, and they then proceed against Henry the Lion, and they basically force Frederick's hand. Uh, they force him to essentially agree to the deprivation of Henry of his duchies they're forcing him it was always even though the problem always with this explanation that this was the high point of Frederick's reign was why was he unable to acquire anything for the monarchy Saxony or Bavaria people always kept in mind what had happened with Philip Augustus and King John in 1204 after 12 o four when Philip Augustus was able to acquire Normandy and Anjou and maine right the, as uh, King John lost his overpowerful vassal in France and build up the power of the French monarchy, and you had the case, yes, here too, you have a, the most powerful vassal of the king losing his territory, but the monarchy doesn't gain anything from it, and no one could you know that, that was the contradiction, so I think there's defeat of Henry the Lion, so-called defeat, is sort of forced upon him, almost against his will, or certainly take it as far as it went, without him gaining anything uh, in return for the crown. And that, I think, is part and parcel, in a way, of his defeat, of the the, the failure of the reign. I mean, one hand successful, he does build up some territory, but it's dynastic power in southern Germany, but he's not able to really gain long-lasting benefits for the crown.
0: That, that's one of the contradictions that really stands out in your book is that on the one hand, Frederick Barbarossa is this large figure in German history. He's this large figure in medieval history. And yet the way you spell out his uh, reign, it's a series of regular setbacks. mm mm-hmm. And I know we're going to get to the uh, you know question of his of his posthumous image in just a little bit, but I I've, that, that I never really picked up on just how dramatic that contradiction was until you detail it. You know, Italy, the the setbacks of, of Henry the Lion, and then of course he at the end of his reign goes on this crusade.
1: Yeah, and 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 the crusade is again ambiguous, right? I mean, in a sense, the crusade is what's Saves his reputation. I mean, my guess is, is if he had died in bed, you know, or died in Germany, um, he this all of this would not have built up. It's it's the fact that he goes off on crusade and dies for the faith. But that's ambiguous, like so many things in his reign. Uh, he marches through the Balkans. He marches through Asia Minor. He does defeat the Seljuk Turks at the Battle of Iconium in or it is now southeastern uh, Turkey. And then he doesn't die in battle. He drowns in a stream. <laughs> I mean, he drowns in a stream, and it's not clear the, exactly what happens, but apparently the best guess is the most you know, immediate reports are that he was in the river taking a bath or swimming. We, we have other evidence that he liked to swim. We have a report of him swimming in the Adriatic Sea. Um, and so he grounds. My own suspicion is he may have had a heart attack. Uh, you know, he, he's he's the 67. He's been marching in armor uh, in June across what is now Turkey, right? In armor in the heat. Uh, he's 67 and he hits a cold mountain stream. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a heart attack. Uh, but he doesn't die in battle. He dies sort of drowning, et cetera. And the ambiguity, and I mentioned this sort of in the introductions of the book, is depicted in a depiction of his death that was made in about 1196 for his son, Henry the Sixth, which shows his drowning, and it shows sort of the ambiguity of it. On the one hand, his soul is being was represented like a baby in swaddling clothes, is being picked up by an angel, right? And being carried to heaven, so he's, you know, he's he's died as a martyr, but the depiction of his is on his horseback. He wasn't on a horse; he was swimming, but it, which is sort of modeled after medieval representations of Pharaoh drowning in the Red Sea, right? And so he's stumbling off his horse, and the crown lies already at the bottom of the stream. So is it a depiction of a success or a failure? And it's very very shortly after this was painted, this was simply covered up with sort of white, some sort of whitewash paint, and only which was only removed at the beginning of the twentieth century to get back at the original illustration. So even his death is ambiguous, but the fact that he dies on, you know, fighting for the faith sort of redeems his reputation. Uh, it is the most documented event of his reign. I mean, every European chronicler picked it up, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. there. Are dozens and dozens, probably hundreds, of references to his death. I mean, this this certainly caught the imagination, and in a sense, that sort of redeemed his reputation. That was in the Middle Ages, this death.
0: And yet he... It's an ambiguous death, and he has a very questionable legacy in many ways. And yet, in the centuries that follow, his reputation undergoes this metamorphosis. And I was wondering if you could... Elaborate a bit upon what happens in the centuries that follow.
1: What happens, it's all kind of befuddled. First of all, there is the confusion with his grandson, Frederick II, Uh, same name. And in fact, the whole name Barbarossa, Redbeard, was adopted by the Italians so they could differentiate between Frederick I, Frederick, and his grandson, Frederick II, who was very much an Italian monarch. Uh, who re- who spent a total maybe of eight years in Germany. Uh, uh, Frederick and uh, the first time Barbarossa uh, appears uh, is, in a, is in Florence in tw- in 1298, so more than a century after Frederick's death. It is never used in the Middle Ages for Frederick. It means red beard, although the evidence suggests he was a blonde and not red. But that's again sort of the mytho- mythologizing. But they had problems. Differentiating between Frederick I and Frederick II, Frederick II, of course, became also all sorts of almost a legendary figure in his own lifetime. He was either seen as the last emperor who would restore the Holy Land to the Christian faith, he was also seen widely as the Antichrist. And there were all of these speculations which all went awry when Frederick II dies in December of 11, uh, 1250, peacefully in bed in Sicily. So all of that you know all of this myth. So and there was a myth that he hadn't really died, he hadn't fulfilled his apocalyptic expectations and that Frederick II was coming back eventually, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What he was going to do, he was either going to person he was going to purge and purify the church or he was a, it was the antichrist coming back. That was all very vague. So there was a notion of returning emperor.
0: And, and you mentioned that that was very much contingent upon the fact that his body was not in Germany. Yeah, I, I, of course,
1: it, but but this was about Frederick II, uh, but what then happens gradually is they uh, blend the two two monarchs together, and made possible in part because Frederick I wasn't in Germany. I, I, none of this would have happened if Frederick had died in Germany or if they'd brought the body back to Germany, but instead, the body was, well, was out there, and we don't quite know where it ended up, right? He was buried in pieces. Let's leave it at that, right? <laughs> the various steps along the way. I think, in the end, it was just the bones which were supposed to either go to Tyre, ultimately to Jerusalem, to be probably buried in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, if they had captured Jerusalem in the Third Crusade, but that didn't happen. But that was probably where he would have ended up. If he had ended up there, then none of this would have happened either. But the two... Fredericks were conflated, and so the, by the say the 15th century, the notion is that a Frederick, and it's not clear whether Frederick I or II, is asleep someplace, and they're saying he's asleep in a place called the Keferitzer, which is a mountain uh, in which there was a castle which uh, where he stayed at least once in Thuringia, but. Significantly enough, located in two places that are very important in later German history. One was Wittenberg, Luther and the 95 Theses, and the other is Weimar and all the associations of Weimar, uh, Goethe, and then ultimately the the Weimar Republic. But but there's all of that association. So the Kiefhäuser is in proximity to Wittenberg and Weimar, and the notion is that he is somehow a Frederick is sleeping. And gradually, it shifts from being just ambiguous who the Frederick is to Frederick Barbarossa. And essentially then, at the beginning of the 19th century, in the disappointment that follows the Congress of Vienna and the failure to achieve national unity, the myth that Frederick is sleeping in this mountain, the Kiefhäuser is popularized by, of all people, the Grimm Brothers in German folktales. And they mm-hmm. tell this story about the sleeping emperor. And it takes on the form then that he is sleeping and he will awaken when Germany is united. And in this sort of proto-nationalistic movement, they write poems about the sleeping emperor, etc., etc., etc. The most famous one uh, was by, uh, written in 1817, man called Friedrich Rickert about how he will awaken when Germany is united. And when Germany is united in 1871, it became part of the required school curriculum throughout the country. So there was this poem, and so then there's this notion that he will be, uh, he will come awaken out of his sleep inside the mountain when Germany is united. When Germany is united in 1871, this is then really picked up And you get the juxtaposition of Frederick and Wilhelm I, the emperor of the United Germany. Uh, From 1871 onward, Wilhelm I is called Barbara Blanca, which means white beard. And you get the notion of what you've got is that at various times when Germany has been disunited uh, in chaos, you've got the great leader, and the restoration by a great leader. This was based in part on Frederick's uncle, Otto Friesing, who had portrayed him, after only four years of reign, as the bringer of a new age of peace, of harmony, etc. You can see how in 1871, you could pick this up, finally a united Germany in 1933, with Hitler and the Third Reich, Second Reich, Third Reich, and Frederick, so so you get almost then the linkage between Frederick Wilhelm I and ultimately Hitler, and all of this has been played out in massive ways, in publicly, most famously in a, in a monument that was then erected on the Kiefheiser, which is a huge monument built in the 1890s, showing Wilhelm I. On top of the mountain, in a huge equestrian statue, but carved into the mountain is Frederick awakening, and that's on the mountainside, etc., etc. And then, uh, so that you get this association of Frederick with the notion of a symbol of a united Germany, and that somehow symbolizing the periods of time in which Germany, after periods of this unity, revives, and you can see how that then plays out in 1871 and
0: 1933. And you point out the irony that was reflected in Wilhelm II's attitude towards Frederick, which was that he wasn't the Prussians themselves were not part of that Holy Roman uh German uh realm during Barbarossa's time. So there was this almost this discomfort because it had this effect of perhaps highlighting or underscoring the fact that the Prussians weren't part of that medieval German tradition.
1: No, the Prussians weren't, and of course the ancestors of the Hohenzollern dynasty had been just counts, and they hadn't been major players, unlike the other German princes, uh, the Wittelsbachs of Bavaria, uh, Otto Wittelsbach was probably uh, Frederick's chief lieutenant and is rewarded by being made the Duke of Bavaria in 1180, and they of course then rule as dukes and then as kings. Bavaria till 1918 or the Zaringen dynasty in Baden uh, who will become the Grand Dukes of Baden and who are Dukes already in the 12th century. So in a sense uh, the, the, the Hohenzollern are sort of Johnny-come-lately so they don't feel particularly happy about this until 1871 when they obviously in part adopt the mythology
0: mm-hmm.
1: but then Wilhelm II is already a himself ambiguous, although he names a battleship, uh, the Barbarossa. But he's yeah. ambiguous. But when they have to the dedicate the the, the Kiefer monument, and the date is actually the anniversary of Frederick's imperial coronation, he gives a speech without mentioning Barbarossa, although Barbarossa is depicted as awakening at the monument.
0: You mentioned the ambiguity in another context, which is when the Nazis come to power in 1933. they Relationship with the Barbarossa legend is complicated by the fact that because it had been appropriated by the Prussian dynasty, and because the Nazis were trying to distance themselves from it, they never really embraced it wholeheartedly.
1: Yeah, that, there is that ambiguity. I mean, there, there is this, and and of course the Kiefoys monument is uh, this Prussia, this uh, mean style of architecture which Hitler has. Uh, as an art critic personally didn't like, there was, of course, you've already mentioned the business, of course, that Frederick was fighting the Italians, and the Italians were his chief mm-hmm. allies, right? So there was that uh, kind of, <laughs> there was that ambiguity. And, yes. and, and, and so, you you know, in a sense, Frederick was associated then with the Prussian monarchist tradition, which in many ways Hitler opposed. So, so there was this, this ambiguity. And many of the uh, Nazis were much more attracted to Henry the Lion who had been busy, after all, fighting the Slavs uh, in what is now Mecklenburg, cetera—that that is northern Germany, and uh, conquering Slavs. And that seemed to be, of course, a much better model in many ways than Frederick. And uh, no less a person than Heinrich Himmler uh, really promoted in the 30s the cult of Henry the Lion, he financed the publication of Henry the Lion's documents, and the church St. Blasian in Braunschweig or Brunswick, which Henry the Lion built, was turned, which had become a Lutheran church, was turned into a sh- Nazi shrine to Henry the Lion. <laughs> so that you've got them actually you know, Himmler pushing Henry the Lion, and uh, But in the end, you end up with Operation Barbarossa because, in a sense, an emperor trumps a duke.
0: And that's the crowning glory of all this, which is that so many people today know the name Barbarossa because of that association, even though the Nazis were, as you just described, a little uncomfortable with the Barbarossa image and the fact that Barbarossa was focused upon practically everywhere except the East.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the irony of it. But, you know, when, I, when Yale approached me about writing this biography, the first thing that occurred to me was you've got to start with Operation Barbarossa because if anybody in the United States knows anything about Frederick, it's Operation Barbarossa. And then they raised the question, how did you get there? And I thought that in many ways was the most interesting part of the whole story. I mean, it's this nationalistic appropriation. And as far as I, I was ever able to figure out, it seems to have been Hitler's personal choice.
0: So what happens to Frederick's image after the war? I mean, where does it stand today with all that's happened with Germany being separated, reunited, and, and dealing with its place in a post-war Europe?
1: It's very, very strange uh, what happens. You get, I think, multiple possibilities. I mentioned the, the Kiefheiser monument is, was in what was then East Germany and the East German communists wanted to tear down the whole thing as a symbol of Prussian militarism, which is an irony because the architect who designed this whole Kiefheuser monument, uh, Bruno Schmitz, designs first the uh, Soldiers and Sailors monument in downtown Indianapolis, which is the central symbol of Indianapolis and the symbol of the triumph of American democracy, which is one of the great ironies of this whole story. But anyway, uh, the, the East German communists wanted to tear it down, but the Russians insisted on keeping it as a symbol of German their commitment to German unification, of course under their terms. So it was kept, and the one of the last postage stamps on the eve of unification, the East Germans issue, shows the of monument. So it's a, so in that in East Germany it becomes a peculiar symbol of German unity, uh, the, 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 uh, strangely and odd as it may sound, with the blessing of the Russian Soviets. Very strange story. Uh, the West has certain uh, different things. Uh, on the one hand, you have a leading Austrian public intellectual, I can describe by the name of Friedrich Hare, who, who essentially likens uh, Frederick's rule in uh, Italy uh, to uh, Nazi rule in conquered territories during the 1940s, right? Uh, refers to it as a Schreckenherrschaft, a uh, a a, a, ter- a reign of terror, right? So you almost get this kind of stuff. On the other hand, uh, there was always the notion that, and here too also feels this, that somehow in Germany it was the princes who were the great promoters of. German economic development, of German cultural development. And so there was that kind of notion. And in the Federal Republic, you've tended, of course, to emphasize more the states, which don't have any connection with actually any medieval territorial entity. But there was a promotion of the states. So in 1977, to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the establishment of the state of Baden-Wittenberg, Uh, They hold an enormous exhibition they call the Stauffer Exhibition, which has very little to do with Frederick as such. But in any case, they hold this exhibition. Hundreds of thousands of people come to visit it. They issue a a five-volume exhibition catalog, which has a total of about 2,700 pages. And they sell 150,000 copies of this thing. And it has on the front cover, the the so-called Kappenberg head, uh, the bust of Frederick that he gave to his godfather. It's on the front cover. So they're invoking him as a kind of symbol, again, now not so much of German unification, as a symbol of German cultural leadership. I mean, the, in the opening Preface to this catalog, the the, the, the prime minister, baden Wittenberg, uh, associates Frederick with a reign of freedom, uh, by at least not in modern sense, but nevertheless freedom and human self development, which is quite crazy. But it's you're suddenly <laughs> making him into a kind of a symbol of this kind of stuff. Now they, oh, in 2010, they. Hold another exhibition, not now in Stuttgart, but in Mannheim, which is the second largest city in Baden Wittenberg, which is sponsored by three of the German states Baden Wittenberg, uh, Hesse, and the Rhine Palatinate, uh, which is called Three Regions, concentrating on three regions ruled by the Staufer: the uh, Rhine Neckar area, northern Italy. And Sicily, but of course Frederick never ruled Sicily. Sicily was ruled by his grandson Frederick II. But of course this now fits the common the European Union, right? Of which Frederick II, who is the son of a Sicilian Norman mother, is much more a symbol of a united Europe. So you've shifted the focus from Frederick I to Frederick II. Now where you stand today, given all the feelings about the European Union, which have at the moment, I, I don't know where you're
0: going at this moment. Really fascinating. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, a
1: project that I have been thinking about for, since about 1980, something called the Codex Falkensteinensis. It's the oldest family archive, and it was compiled by a man named Calzigy Bodo IV of Falkenstein, who was an almost exact contemporary of Frederick I mean he's four years younger than Frederick and uh, went on the probably went on the Second Crusade probably went on Frederick's fourth Italian campaign you can document that they met at least twice probably more frequently than that but uh, but it's sort of uh, to see one of the great men of the kingdom from this unique perspective of this family archive the only 12th century faculty family archive we've got certainly for a German Magnate. I played with this for off and on for 35 years. So, in a sense, it dovetails with the Frederick Barbarossa biography, but showing us on the ground what these people are doing.
0: How interesting. Well, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us here about your book. It's a great book. And I hope, you know, not just in terms of Frederick's life, but also this legacy, which seems so totally divorced from what he did.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for having me.